Hey everyone, welcome to the Dunces Corner, our sophomore season. We are back. I am Dr. Brian Pedraza, and as always, I'm joined by my dear friend and colleague, Dr. John Miner. How's it going, Dr. Miner? About the same. Yeah, anything new happening in your neck of the woods, you know, besides the pandemic and the start of semester? <laughs> well, I don't know. Are you excited? The peas are coming up. And that's oh. always really exciting because sugar snap peas fresh are about as good as it gets from a garden. Oh, yeah. And that's a good snack. Watching them coming up, come up is really exciting. Do your kids but eat them raw? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's the only way to eat them. Oh, yeah. Every cooked pea is a ruined pea. Ah, oh, <laughs> nicely said. How about a little ranch dressing? Does that get thrown in there, too? No, never. Oh, you don't need straight it. Up. If you have a sugar snap pea, if you've ever tried a fresh one, you will never go back. I believe it. I used to eat sugar snap peas as a snack during high school. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And as always, we are joined by some of our fabulous students from Franciscan Missionaries of Our Lady University. And we're welcome, welcoming back Catherine. Hey, Catherine, what's going on with you? Hello. Um, I'm an engaged woman. Uh- Whoa. <laughs> That was way, yeah, it is big. That was way harder of an introduction than I probably should have. But yeah, I'm engaged. Big, (laughs) big moves. No, I'd go, I'd go hard with that news, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's big news. So it it deserves a kind of big introduction. But yeah, it's good. Uh, Planning a wedding is really hard, really stressful. Um, But you know, it's a thing that's happening. So I'm doing it. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Things do happen to you and then you have to engage your will in order to do them. <laughs> yeah. And all the other stuff really doesn't matter that much. That, that's what I'm saying. That's what you got to, you got to keep it at the bare minimums, like full consent two witnesses. Yeah. That's it. You're good. Yeah. I don't even need, we, <laughs> as we like plan the wedding, the more, uh, attractive elopement <laughs> seems elopement within the marriage, right? Like six months period waiting, prepping, and then just like run off, which right. wouldn't nice. be the most prudent. I feel like just in terms of keeping families content, but it is very attractive. It is nice. Yeah. I suppose it depends on circumstances, but yeah, probably, <laughs> in most cases, probably not the most prudent thing. Um, so you guys actually took a canon law class, so you, you're going to know what the canonical form is. You can nail it, you know? Yes, we do. I We're going to make sure that if we get married at a church where the priest is not, the priest who's marrying us is not the presider at that church, we're going to make sure he has written consent from the pastor. Excellent. It's, Father Jamin would be so proud. I know. <laughs> <laughs> And canonical form is a big deal these days when it comes to the sacraments. Kind of been yeah. in the news. <laughs> You'd like to know that you're actually married. That'd be great. That, that would be good. That, that'd be a good thing to know. <laughs> That's awesome. So have you all done food tasting yet? No. See, we're like, we're not scheduled till December of 21. So we still got a, a big, big chunk of time. But we have thought about food and thought about it, you know, a moderate amount, amount I guess. <laughs> we haven't tasted food though. We're uh we're itching to get some cake. But oh, you yeah. know. Well, Dr. Pedraza and I offer to cater your wedding with Taco Bell. If you'd like. <gasps> Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I wish our venue didn't already have catering. That's true. 
I will say I already have a sensitive stomach and Taco Bell might not be the thing I want to eat on my wedding night. Uh, so, okay. That's fair. That's you know, fair. That, that's my, that's my only, uh, my only reservation. <laughs> uh, well, we were going to spring, for, spring for you there, you know, but you know, you didn't have to accept the gift. That's up Lightfully to you. Lightfully decline. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that in wedding planning, the food tasting is one of the best parts. I mean, you sit at a table and somebody brings you four or five different kinds of cake. And you just get to eat as much of it as you like. I mean, that's nice. You know? It is nice. Unless you don't like cake. Then then I feel like you're kind of in a bind. But, yeah, you're right. You know. You're right about that. <laughs> we didn't have cake at our wedding. Did you have at snap all? peas? Uh, we didn't have snap peas either. <laughs> we didn't have any cake at all, no. One of Katie's cousins, who was a chef, catered it. And he did. It's been like 12 years. So it was some kind of squishy dessert. I don't remember, really. Was it oh, an ooey squishy. gooey butter cake? It, it was absolutely not that. <laughs> uh, all right. I'm not squishy. even sure what that is. <laughs> yeah, for the listeners, there's a little bit of a debate on what that dessert should be named and what it is in St. Louis, right? And since I'm from St. Louis and it's from St. Louis, I win. Yeah. <laughs> what is gooey, what is it? It's a gooey butter cake. It's not gooey check pie. squares or ooey gooey. All of this is wrong. <laughs> Let it be known. Mm. Excellent. And we also have for the first time joining us a couple new faces, and by faces I mean voices. Uh first up, he was actually he joined our theology program last year, but this is first time on the podcast. It's Daniel. How's it going, Daniel? Hello. How are y'all? Good. This is my first time podcasting. I'm brand new to this. Well, we are happy to have you with us. And just for the sake of our listeners, uh, give us a little bit, Daniel, if you don't mind, how you found your way to Fran U in our theology program. Wow, that's that's a long story. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I graduated high school uh, a few years back and then... Man, long story short, I went to college, and then I started discerning, uh, did some discernment with the religious community, and uh, I flip-flops, went back and forth between that community and college um, over the course of about two years, and then I just discerned, you know what? No, I need to, I need to go get a degree before I, um, it, you know, I feel like God was calling me to get a college degree. Um, before I really took any next step in my discernment. So I went back to college and I was studying industrial technology and (laughs) it was just, it was miserable because um, I'm not very good at math. Um, Case in point, I'm taking algebra for the fourth time this semester. (laughs) So just, it was a (laughs) box that, it was a box that I was not supposed to be fit in. And uh, Whitney's going to kill you if you fail that. Yeah. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. I'm, um, I'm, I, uh, I'm feeling the pressure. And so, yeah, I mean, studying industrial technology, it, it was, it was great, but I mean, just for me personally, it was, yeah. I mean, I was just, I was miserable there cause I just felt like I was, you know, not doing what my heart wanted to do. Um, and I just discerned, I was like, you know what, I've always been into theology I've always been really interested in it. Um, I feel like God might be calling me to uh, to do something um, as far as like vocation wise, which is like a duh. Yeah, He's calling all, all of us to do something. But um, I just felt like 
no matter what I did um, in regards to vocation, a theology degree was only going to help me. It was only going to be um, useful for that. And so I discerned uh, to transfer over to Fran U, where I am now. And I'm happy and I'm living and I'm loving and having a great time. And it's been a real blessing um, just being able to take these classes. Um, a lot of my credits transferred over. So I'm just pretty much taking theology and philosophy now. And um, yeah, praise God. It's been a great time. That's awesome. So industrial tech, that's like machines and stuff. No? Right. Yes? Right. Like what yeah. is that? So I think, I think there's in and of itself, it's like a big category. Um, but for me, I was more into the um, managerial aspect of it. Um, kind of like running uh, or supervision, um, I should say, uh, supervising and running um, like a factory or uh, oh, just a, okay. just like industrial uh, pr- uh, processes, you know. Um, and with that, I was taking like a lot of OSHA classes and, and all that. So it was pretty interesting. But the math part, like the calculus and stuff, I still needed. And that was just not not working out. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Kosh is going to drag you across the finish line if she has to. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. And last but not least, we are joined by our newest theology major, Avera. What's up, Avera? Hi. I I just woke up. That's that's what's up. I was up until two in the morning uh, doing Dr. Boria homework. So philosophy. Yes. Excellent. (laughs) What was the philosophy assignment about? Logicola. Actually, the Logicola exercises. I have a MacBook computer, and Logicola does not like Mac. So my friend has a PC, and we were up trying to do assignments last night. And yeah, I watched a lot of football in between trying to process uh, all of the information, and finally came home and was like, "I I need a break." <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Totally understand. Sometimes when you're working all day, even if it's late, you need some moments of vegging out. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, Avera, how did you find your way to us and our theology program? Absolutely. So, I had zero intentions of ever going back to college, uh, maybe (laughs) three months ago. And, uh, in the middle of, of the summer, I had a conversation with my sister's basketball coach, actually. Um, she had come over to the house and was just kind of talking with me. And I really felt the Holy Spirit just like tugging at me saying, you need to go back to school. You need to go back to school. Um, and then I was on the phone with Father Joshua Johnson the next day. And I had mentioned the conversation to him. And he was like, why don't you just apply to Fran U? And I was like, but I don't want to go to Steubenville. Like, it's cold. <laughs> like, it's so far away. <laughs> like, I just don't. I, I'm not feeling it. And he was like, not Franciscan. Fran you in Baton Rouge. And I was like, what is that? I've never heard of it. <laughs> so I talked to Dr. Wooden the next day, actually, and had submitted an application, got in. And moved here like 
three or four weeks later, actually, and began school. Wow. There's some trust for you. Yeah. (laughs) I tried. I really tried. (laughs) And now you're fumbling with Logic Cola on your Mac and learning about Greek words and Christology. I love that, though. Yeah. yeah, How's it going? (laughs) I've I've really, really loved it. Um, I've been, this is my third time uh, doing like collegiate studies. I did a year at the University of South Alabama straight out of high school um, back in 2016 and hated it. It was absolutely miserable. Did a semester of community college then took a semester off, did a year of community college, took two years off, uh, and then again, like had no intentions of going back, mostly because I was in a position of studying things in order to get a degree, not studying things because I was actually interested in the material or the subject matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like I, I loved the idea of like going to Franciscan or going to Benedictine or Belmont Abbey or something like that, but they were just, they were so far out of my comfort zone. And two, like, I love being in the South, you know, like I want to be able to go home, still go to my Mardi Gras parades and the balls and like all of this stuff without having <laughs> to like miss school for it. Um, and I just, I loved the atmosphere of like being uh, in the South and being so close to home with my family, if they needed me for anything, you know, a lot of my family is up in age and, you know, God forbid, you know, something happens. I want to be close by. Um, but also just the atmosphere down here, uh, the Catholicism down here is so different and vibrant. And I still wanted to be in a place where I was, I knew I was taking care of like Southern hospitality wise. And you just mm. don't find that anywhere else you know and I wanted to be somewhere that was genuinely Catholic and just really good and I came to Fran U and got way more than I ever expected to have and I'm only half a semester in (laughs) thanks be to God yeah so come on folks come on down to the south come on down to Fran UBR I honestly think so many people go like out of state or like to, to other like bigger schools because they are not aware that Fran U exists yeah, well, so. props props to our friend, Father Josh Johnson, for putting us on your radar. For sure. That's awesome. That's a good man. That's a good We priest. just need to get him to link this podcast on his Twitter feed. <laughs> Ooh. I think we could hook that up. I think we could. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to see him Saturday. He's treating me to a birthday dinner, so I can definitely like there pull you go. that birthday there you card go. if y'all would like. Fantastic. Yeah, guilt him into it. <laughs> Let's wait to hear what the edited version sounds like first before we pass <laughs> out to that many people. That sounds like a uh, and that also means you have a birthday coming up. Is that right? Avera? My birthday is Friday. I will be 24 on Friday. Fantastic. Yeah, the birthday. Happy early birthday. Thank you. Yeah. That's awesome. so affectionately dubbed the election apocalypse is coming and uh 
As you've probably noticed, whether on media or social media, the sort of discussion that's going on in our country, in our local communities, not always uplifting, and in many ways can be, I think, bewildering and even frustrating for Catholics and other Christians who want to make sure that they are reflecting the light of Christ to society, wanting to participate in good ways in their communities. But just the way that politics is being talked about, the way that it's being approached in our country, seems like a a very difficult thing. And it's something that is... um, in many ways, fractured, you know, in our communities. So I was texting with the Associate Director of Youth and Young Adult Ministry in our diocese, uh, Mr. Wes Giffen, and he was even mentioning that this is really on his mind, and he knows a lot of young adults in the area are asking questions and wondering, you know, about how Catholics can approach um, the election this at this time. And so I thought, hey, this would be a great topic for us to tackle. Though, of course, you know, we we tread lightly and carefully and thoughtfully. Um, But yeah, I think a lot of people need some help. And who knows, maybe with us sort of thinking through some of the issues, we could provide at least a tiny bit of help to people who are sort of wrestling with this right now. So the first thing that I wanted to do was sort of just survey the landscape. I mean, for Someone who wants to be faithful to Christ and to his church and wants to be a good citizen and participate in the political aspects of our communities, what are the challenges? I mean, what's it like? Um, What are your own thoughts, your own observations about the things that people are facing right now? I didn't even just thinking about this topic. It's super hard to just talk to have conversations with people about politics. And I think I think that's something that everyone can see, but I think it's because of a couple different things. Uh, one, I think people get super personally invested in politics mm. and they almost put their identity either in the political party that they're in or in the beliefs that they have. And that's tricky to navigate how how you should associate and connect to your own beliefs, right? Because beliefs are really important. And especially when there's a lot at stake, it's important to uh, it's important to fight for what's right and what you believe is right. Um, but at the same time, it's almost like whenever we talk about politics, people, if you disagree with someone, it feels like a personal attack. Mm. Because there's so much uh, of ourselves inside of it. So I don't, that, I mean, that's hard. And then also, I mean, it doesn't help that there's just a lot of decisiveness and inflammation um, just in the way we talk about politics. So it's almost like a, it's almost like there's this, there's this baseline of like, okay, we're not going to agree. So there's no point in discussing and therefore let's just be really spiteful towards one another. Um, and this isn't for everyone. It's not for, it's not that everyone is super spiteful, but you do see it when there's this like baseline of we're not going to agree. So it's frustrating and hard to just approach anything in politics when you don't necessarily have this baseline 
idea of, okay, I want to discuss politics and I want to find the truth and I want to have a productive conversation because that's not where most people are coming from in it. Um, most people, I don't know, I say most people, and this is just from my perspective. So reality could be entirely different, um, but right. I think people kind of get wrapped up in this. I need to be right. And my ideas need to be right. And if you disagree with me, then like, there's no dialogue that we can have, which is just a, a bad place to be in a, a dangerous place to be in. Mm. Yeah, you're. I mean, as you were speaking, I, speaking of Father Josh, I remembered a homily that he preached a few Sundays ago, where he was even talking about the um, even the most you know seemingly <laughs> spiritual Catholics, you know, rosary clutching, highly involved in the parish. Like when election season rolls around, just like you're surprised by the amount of spite that can come out of that person, you know? I mean, it's crazy how, how much people get riled up. Um, and I think you're right. You know, it's, it, it, it's almost like they identify their identity gets taken over by politics or political parties or polit- political ideas for sure. You know, one thing I see, um, kind of like a rising trend and it really scares me um, is I'm starting to see that I think there are people on a lot of different sides that I think are starting to maybe not explicitly say this, but like starting to equate someone's like worth um, or determining someone's worth um, depending. And that's like their worth is dependent upon what they believe. Um, and so like if, if someone's the opposite party of you, well then you like just subconsciously think that, you know, they're not worth as much as you are or that, you know, their opinion doesn't matter or, you know, you don't have this like true charity for them. And I think that's like kind of the most dangerous um, trend I see today. That's on the rise. Um, it's just this idea that, you know, that we just, there's been this lack of charity just amongst different parties that if, that if you don't believe the same thing that I believe, well, then I don't really care type of thing. And I think that's something that's really dangerous and um, kind of need to watch out for, you know? So. Yeah. That's interesting, Daniel. So I, going back to your thought about the worth, the self-worth, do you think it's a matter of, people are finding their identity and what they believe or is their self-worth connected here not only with what they believe, but whether they can get other people to like and agree with what they believe. Right. Like it, to me, I, I wonder if, you know, just sort of like the influence of social media on our interactions is sort of making it like, if I don't get a certain number of likes or comments or th- on things that I do, then I'm not worth as much anymore, you know? And so it's almost creating this atmosphere where it's like, no, you you have to agree with me. And if you don't agree with me, then you're taking a shot at my identity. Does that make any sense? No. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I agree with that. I think that that's definitely a, um, a thing that's happening, you know? Um, yeah, I think it, it's so polarized now, you know, that a lot of people, they identify themselves completely a hundred percent totally with one party or the other or one side or the other that 
whenever that party or that side gets criticized in any way, um, it's kind of like Catherine was saying, they're, they're, they feel attacked and they don't feel as worthy, you know? Um, but it goes back to what you're saying is the fact that in, and I guess war, because that's not really dialogue anymore and war with the other side, when conversions don't happen, then they feel, you know, as if they failed and they're seeing their either success or failure. They're letting it have an effect on, on how they, they see themselves, you know, and that's not, that's not the reality of it all. The reality is the fact that, you know, each and every single one of us is, is made in the image of God. And, you know, we have dignity, you know, um, as being made in his image, especially as, as Christians, uh, being baptized, having him, you know, within our very selves in our souls, uh, him present there. And so it's one thing, you know, to just it, to argue with anybody that's, you know, cause everyone's made in the image of God and we need to respect that. Um, but especially like you're saying with, uh, with the pious people, um, at your parish that whenever we're arguing with another Christian, another Catholic, well, then we really need to have, uh, have reverence for them, you know, have reverence for the presence of Christ within them too, you know, cause they're our brothers, they're our sisters, they're part of the body of Christ. Um, so just, just kind of remember that when, when we go forward and we're talking with other people that, that they are beloved by God, you know, they, they have dignity beyond our comprehension. Yeah. Some of my, um, <clears throat> some of my kind of initial uh, qualms with politics in general, I think is, and it's something that I'm seeing developing even more so now because of all of the racial tension in the country Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just being an African-American in 2020, it's hard, you know, is, I mean, being African-American is hard in general. It has been, um, really since the founding of this country, but even now I think it's kind of something that I'm seeing is even though, Africans, African-Americans by law cannot be physically enslaved anymore. I'm seeing this sort of like mental and physical, or I mean, this mental and spiritual enslavement um, of so many people, um, specifically to a specific ideal, you know, um, I often finding myself questioning why nearly 90% of my race votes a specific way. And you don't see that across the board with other races. And it all, it worries me that I see, and this doesn't necessarily just apply to black people, but the people across the board is I don't think that there's enough encouragement of thinking for ourselves. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with, um, I don't want to say 
kind of a, a laziness of consciousness, but not not necessarily either a like trusting ourselves to do so or thinking that we have to. Um, and a lot of this, I think, has to go back to we're more willing to trust a party or political party than we're willing to trust in God. And I wonder why that is, you know, um, and I've seen a lot of this, like growing up, kind of wondering why we would put so much of our faith and so much of our trust um, so much of our money, so much of our thought processes um, into politics, um, especially, you know, like I, I would be in scenarios where I would be in groups of people where we'd be more inclined to talk about how a um, politician thinks about us um, more than we would talk about how God thinks of us. Mm. And that is an exceedingly dangerous place to be because while I would hope that a politician has my best interests in mind, they are still a human being capable of flaw, capable of shortcomings, um, capable of, of falling short of seeing me through too narrow a lens. And it's just unfortunate the amount of pandering I see to Black people. You know, the amount of, like, random text messages or, like, random, like, Facebook things or Instagram ads that I have seen pandering to me that I don't see my white friends getting. <laughs> you know, mm. like, why? I literally was asking some of them, like, did you get this, like, notification? And they were like, I've never seen that before. And I'm like, why is this happening to us? You know, like, first of all, how do they know? <laughs> like, yeah, how do yeah. they know I'm Black? Uh, but then, like, why is it just me? And, like, why are certain people um, putting forth ideas that an overwhelming majority of black people are listening to who have probably never stepped into the political sphere or like never stepped into like such and such place that would know the playing field in which they stand. Um, and it's just, it's kind of a, it's a weird spot to be in, especially because I have been conditioned for so long to think a certain way. And so much of that conditioning has not included God's name, has not included his providence, has not included his love for humanity, has not included anything about him. And, you know, my initial thought now um, is if you don't have God's name in your mouth, don't have mine in your mouth either. Because you're not going to have much of anything to say to me um, as far as who to vote for or what to do with within the political sphere or anything like that. Um, and I've seen that come to light in a very just overwhelming manner in in this, you know, uh, political season of, you know, just kind of equating again, like saying that because I'm black, I have to do this, this, and this. And when the question why arises, I'm often met with, 
screams and like you don't represent black people or like you don't know like all this thing like you're not actually black like getting my quote-unquote black card swiped like (laughs) you know it's it's sad that oftentimes my race is deduced to how people treat me or how people think that I am supposed to think or anything like that. And hardly any, any of that has anything to do with God. Mm. And that's, what's making politics, especially so hard for me as an individual to navigate because you know, I want to talk about God and I want to talk about how he loves not only me, but all of my brothers and sisters, even those who don't acknowledge him or have turned their back to him. Um, and the fact that God has tried, people have tried to forcibly remove him. You know, I don't even think this is a case of trying to remove God. I think this is a, a feat to try and take his place. Um which St. Augustine says it's, it's, it's hilarious how even in our attempts to move God, we mimic him. Uh, and it, it's just, it's a sad and kind of dismal place to be. Um, but I'm hopeful, you know, because of yeah. conversations like this or um, some of the other conversations I've had either with uh, other black people who think the same way or just people in general. Um, I'm seeing more people realize that there is something wrong in the way that we're approaching politics or even in the way that we're approaching humanity in general, you know, just, just life in general. And hopefully we don't have to send descend to the depths. You have to like dig ourselves into a hole before we see that. But I mean, I think we're going to dig ourselves into a hole either way. Hopefully we can rise uh, above that when people see like, this is not a place that we want to be. This is not a place of human flourishing at all. Yeah, that's that's really insightful, Avera, and powerfully said too. I, I was curious as you're speaking, you know, that thought about the replacement of God and how um, you hear people speak so much about politics, but they don't speak of God. That's really striking, especially um, because a lot of the African American friends I have and Black communities that I've uh, been able to go visit. Um, it spirituality runs deep in those communities. So it's almost, I mean, it's shocking to sort of hear that when it just seems like, well, that just seems to be such a part of the identity of these communities. So do you feel like, like how, how is that being worked out when you, as you so eloquently explained it, 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 you, you feel like you're being used as a tool for political power, but, does spirituality come into the conversation? Do people feel like they have to separate parts of themselves to, you know, get into politics? What's that been like? Wow, that that's a really profound point. And now that you say that too, you know, kind of what we were learning in intro is just how deep spirituality runs uh, in the veins of African Americans, uh, you know, in in the U.S. in general. You know, um, so much of uh, so many of us, you know, my my Catholic heritage runs back far, you know, on, on both sides of my family, both sides of my uh, just African-American uh, family uh, of the, the people who are African-American. I have some some French and some, you know, uh, in different places. 
but it's incredible just how deep the well runs uh, with spirituality. And to an extent, I feel like many people who try to to cater to or pander to the the African-American race have to try and separate that um, because they, again, I think they're, they're cognizant of the fact of we are spiritual people. You know, we, we have been, you know, even in, you know, slave era, you know, that was something where we were constantly calling on the name of the Lord. You know, so many of our Negro spirituals or like our songs or our, our hymns or anything like that all have to do with God. So why is it now that people are trying to remove that? And the more, even just you saying that, I, I can think of like specific instances and conversations and debates and kind of like very war-esque <laughs> type of uh, debacles where I became confused as to like, well, where, where is God in this? Because again, like it almost felt like we had to forcibly remove him in order to speak about politics. And anytime his name was mentioned, it's almost this like vehement, like anger that almost immediately arises. And I I think that comes from a place of just woundedness of like knowing how important he is and yet feeling like a we've distanced ourselves or he's distanced himself from us. And I wonder if, you know, we just feel like as a community especially having to deal with slavery in our past. It's like, where was God in that? You know, like how do slave master and slave worship the same God? You know, how do, how do we bring a God into politics that didn't like completely disrupt um, in the way that we wish it might've happened our history? you know, of, of slavery. And I feel like that there's a wounded spirit running rampant over our community as a whole. And this is a spiritual battle, you know, and I I see that spirit here and now just kind of wreaking havoc over our community and saying, well, he didn't help you then. So why would he do so now? And it's hard you know, and I think we we talked about this in, in class the other day, Dr. Pedraza, that, you know, how do we face the stark history of our people and how do we bring God into that conversation in a way that's healing and in a way that does not dismiss what happened to us? Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that that's kind of the main cry of Black people here and now is why aren't you seeing you know, why aren't more people seeing what's happened to us and why and what's still happening and why can't we address that? Um, but I think a lot of times it's used as a weapon against people. And it's like if if mercy doesn't come into the conversation, like that's the reason I feel I know that Catholics don't believe in karma is because that there is no mercy in karma. Right. Like mercy disrupts that. And invites people into community and unity. And 
I feel like this isn't just a racial divide. You know, this is, this is more so than that. And I, but I feel like, again, because we cannot deny that part of our history, that spirit is still manifesting itself in the way that we talk about and we speak about and we think about politics here and now is how do we look in the face, the pain that we've suffered and welcome God's healing presence, welcome the divine physician into that space where we don't try and overlook what's happened, but we really try to see how it's still affecting us and how we can not necessarily, I don't want to say reparation, but seek mercy and justice and move on from that place, not just to try and push it on the back burner, but move on as as a as a mode of healing, you know, as a as a testament to we don't disregard this. We look at it and we try to say, how do we heal from this? How do we move on so that we can, as the body of Christ, uh, walk, continue to walk toward eternity, continue to walk toward uh, what it means to live holistic and real human lives? I don't know if that answers your question oh, yeah. at all. That yeah. was a tangent. <laughs> uh, yeah, amen. You, you, you answered it quite well. I, um, yeah, in the class that she was talking about was Old Testament, where um, a student actually brought up the role of slavery in the Bible. We were going through Leviticus, and um, some of the laws on slavery came up. And so, uh, we I wanted to be as real and not skirting around that question as possible, um, but still find a way for Christians to sort of wrestle with this and and understand um, what the Word of God has to say about it. So, in that light, I, I look forward to, um, if it's something that you end up wanting to do, um, just your own thoughts, Vera, as you learn more about the Old Testament and the story of the Israelites who uh, face different forms of oppression as their history goes on and um and the question comes up where is god in this you know i i look forward to more of your thoughts for sure absolutely so something i'm hearing <clears throat> from all three of you that brings me a lot of joy is how deeply catholic your approach to politics is without using like all the technical jargon of theology and stuff like that. But in some sense, you like, you live it and you have it and you've put your fingers on one of the like deepest problems we have in the American political sphere. I think is that uh, we tend to think that politics has taken too central of a place in our lives. And all three of you were harping on that in some way that we've lost some kind of, uh, transcendent call to the human person. And because we've lost that, we've like turned our eyes to this world and we see it as, as our redemption, right? That our politics is the highest and deepest parts of who we are as a human. And that it becomes, it takes the place of the, of redemption and how dangerous that is for politics not for, for humans, right? Vera, you mentioned like a kind of a slavery to that because it doesn't have something beyond it where you can contextualize it and say, well, that's important, but it's not the deepest parts of who I am, right? As a human person that you can only 
you'll not only distort politics by doing that, but distort the human person, right? And these are the real foundations of um, what Catholics have to offer in the political sphere is that politics is super important, right? It's the highest practical discipline we can engage in. But the but contemplative things are beyond that, right? God's beyond that. God's deeper than that. And so it brings a kind of uh, gravity to our political engagement, but also it relativizes it in some sense against a kind of deeper and broader redemptive history. Um, and because a lot of, we don't approach politics that way, it tends to inhabit a sphere it ought not inhabit. And then people tend to become distorted by engaging in it because what it is for us is this like this highest discipline above all. And so our, and to give us like our deepest, um, our deepest identities and longings, we tend to try to fill a void through our politics. And it's not surprising given that we're a super individualistic country that we're going to try to seek outlets of community and things like that. But politics has come into like inhabit that sphere and it's done bad things to our politics um, and bad things to people who engage in it. Honestly, I know tons of people who have trouble even engaging in politics without having it like distort your character um, because it's not, it's, it's not being engaged in well um, because it is trying to inhabit a space where there's nothing beyond it. There's nothing higher than it. And so it becomes this like first and most important discipline in our lives. And we see how we can see, we see how destructive that is. And then you, you couple that with the fact that we tend not to see our political engagements as um, some, a part of a common project where like everyone has a place at the table and we all need to be talking about this and, uh, dialoguing about how to, how we should best have taxes and other things, but keeping in mind that like, we're all on the same team, like we're part of the same country, we flourish or we don't together in some real sense. So you couple it with that, um, that everyone's like deepest identities come becomes wrapped up in politics. Plus it's not a common pursuit. So now like my deepest in identity is contrary to everyone else's and so it becomes super like shrill and dismissive. And we lose that sense of um, that sense of solidarity with each other that can really make difficult topics and questions a way for all of us to come out on the other end together. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, so, so it was cool for me to hear each of you like stick your finger on some of the sicknesses uh, yeah, it's like, hey, right there, I see you. <laughs> um, I'm not entirely sure what to do about it. <laughs> not no. entirely sure. That's putting it lightly. I have no idea what to do about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. As you're talking, Dr. Miner, I, my own thoughts about the political landscape, and maybe I'll use this as sort of the the bridge to the next part about what the church might have to offer. Um, in terms of its teaching to sort of illuminate this landscape. But my own thoughts, when you were talking about our individualism, I really think you know, there's been a, a discussion in the past few years about the you know, modern liberal project, modern liberalism. And by that, people mean they don't, they're not talking about 
what we typically refer to as conservatives versus liberals, but sort of the classical liberalism that was the start of uh, the form of politics that we find in America, like in its founding. And um, Patrick Deneen from Notre Dame has that you know really popular book, Why Liberalism Failed, where you know, he he basically argues that that understanding of politics has actually succeeded so much that it's destroying itself. And by that, he means that um, it, it's it's hard to sort of encompass something as big as this sort of idea of liberalism. But when I gave this talk at LSU for the Vogelin Institute, one of the things I mentioned was uh, Hobbes, the British philosopher, sort of like a forerunner to modern liberalism. And one of the things that he mentioned in his, his work, The Leviathan, he he says that the for him, the natural state of human beings, so to speak, is one of war. Like one where everybody is out to get theirs, everybody's looking to, you know, <laughs> stab their brother and take theirs, <laughs> that sort of a thing. So everyone, I mean, talk about a, a way of understanding human nature where everyone is isolated, individual, looking out for their own interests. And his argument is basically that um, all of these individual people need to give up a share of their own rights and their own pursuits to the state, the Leviathan, this like, and that's like a biblical monstrous figure, right? So the fact that he even uses that term for it, but give it to the state and this this new entity, the state can sort of be the power and the mediator um, to help everyone in their individual interests to sort of sort it out, so to speak. And the fact that this is one of the seeds that sort of sprouts into our own country's political philosophies and foundations. I mean, I think Deneen is right in this sense that we are sort of seeing it in full force. And I think when you get like the, the double whammy of a pandemic where people are now being even more isolated from one another, and you can't even take a walk down the street without looking at another human being as a possible uh zombie who might infect you with the thing you know that sort of a thing it's it's like that's a a scary prospect for how we understand human nature and then you combine that too with just the sort of ubiquity of social media i don't know if y'all saw that uh the social dilemma on netflix that documentary that came out not too long ago It, it basically just takes a lot of the things that you knew about social media and just puts them all together and tells the story. And you hear from like Silicon Valley, actual people who like helped create the things that we're using all the time. And when you put all those pieces together and you realize that social media is purposely designed to silo us into our own, uh, the things that we like, you know, the algorithms are purposely built so that, you know, someone watches, decides to watch random, uh, conspiracy video on their favorite on Twitter or Facebook or something, right? The algorithm now changes to send you all of the people that you might be connected with who also are interested in that video. And now all of a sudden your timeline is just filled with people who watch that video, like that video. 
And then you start thinking like, yeah, like this is so obviously the truth. Like everybody that I know is like totally on board for this. And then in real life, you meet somebody who disagrees with you and you're like, what an idiot. Like, don't you know that everyone can see that this is the truth? Like you're a fool if you totally disagree with this. And just the creators of this stuff were just acknowledging that this is sort of how it was built. It may not have been their intent in the beginning, but this is what it's led to. And these sort of things, I think, are just sort of fueling the political moment for us. Because even in terms of the church, I, I've been reflecting lately on how the the one fallback of the church these days has been a claim to religious liberty. Like whenever something that Catholics believe in, you know, is getting challenged or is going to a court case or is up for a vote. You know, this seems like the fallback these days has been to say like, well, we need to have religious liberty. You know, we need to be allowed to practice what it is that we do. And I, I just worry, even though I understand um, the importance, the, the extreme importance of religious liberty, that's actually like, this is going to sound bad, but it's actually like playing the liberal game when that's the card that you have to play because it, it imagines that instead of everyone being able to participate in rational dialogue, like reason being shared by all human beings, and we're all trying to argue for what is good and what is bad for our communities. Instead, it imagines that you as a Catholic belong to one group of people and you have your take. And then Oh, this person, oh, you're black, you have a black take. Oh, you're Mexican, you're a Hispanic, Latino, you have a Latino take. And like, oh, okay, you're a, the Muslim take, you know, that sort of a thing. And then it says, well, it's just these various groups trying to gain power. Like it's your take versus my take. And we need the Leviathan to come through and sort of mediate for us and see which take is going to win at this time. And I'm afraid that even the church saying, well, we need to have religious liberty. That's just us being like, this is the only card I have to play. This is my take, you know? And and the Catholic take deserves some sort of hearing. So, like, please don't stamp out the Catholic take. Um, and I get why we're playing that card, because it's very difficult to do anything else today. Um, but it just, to me, it just shows the sad state of affairs where we're sort of left with this, and there really is no common project. And I guess that's the thing that I wanted to bring up in terms of the, the church's teachings, the common good. Like, what does the church mean by the common good? Um, and I'll say, even when I brought this up in my LSU talk, there were some students who, even when they hear the words common good, like for the church, the, the common good is a good that actually is for the entire community and for every participant in the community. Like they're all ordered to this one thing that's common to them all. But at, at LSU, some of the students heard common good. And for them, that was just like, it filtered through as totalitarianism. Like we are the state and will crush your individualism, sacrifice everything you are for the common good. So they couldn't even process what the church meant by common good when they heard the words. And that is just, man, it, it, it's sort of scary. And it just really shows where we're at. But I think the church has something really valuable in giving us this teaching about the common good. 
I mean, when you teach it in class, I mean, I don't know what you do, Dr. Minor, but some of the, like, the common analogies you bring up are like sports or uh, group ensembles in music or things like that, right? Where, you know, on a football team, since that is the other religion of Southern Louisiana, you, you have all of these players who have a common project of winning. And so when a team wins, it's not just like, oh, I... I get my share of the win and you get your share of the win and you could take it and you take your share and do what you want with it. It's like everybody wins. Like everybody celebrates the victory and they each had their own role to play. But even that our society has found a way to individualize. Right. And that's what we call fantasy football. <laughs> I mean, as, as I'm playing fantasy football with father Matt Dunn and Brady, our recent graduate and some of our Deacon candidates, it's like you take a quarterback from this team and you want that quarterback to do the best that he can, despite what the other players do. And then you take a receiver from another team. So they're not actually doing the same thing together. You just want all of these individuals to do well. So, you know, there you go. Our country can't even handle genuinely communal things well without ripping them apart and making them individualistic. One thing right. I... I- when I was thinking about Facebook algorithms is like kind of a side note What the big, the big pitfall they have in trying to read what I think and therefore kind of give me more of the content I enjoy is they don't know what I'm thinking when I watch that video. Yeah. It's like everyone who watches a conspiracy video is happy the whole time. I might be super pissed and be like, this is flipping crazy. I can't believe people did that. And then they're just going to fill my timeline with more of it. Yeah. <laughs> now I say that with some trepidation because I know someone in Silicon Valley knows that like, oh, if we can make this way better, if I could just like read the person's thoughts and emotions while they're watching the video, like let's work <laughs> on some of that. And I'm like, oh no. No, please don't do that. <laughs> right. Right. Like your web, your webcam is going to pick up your facial expression. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. In order to trick it, I'm going to have to watch things I like and just be like the whole time, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. I guess I, I should have added a little more about what practical actions about what we can do when it comes to the common good. And I guess for me, the only way to really start fostering this understanding of the common good is to do it in smaller ways, like local communities. So the more that we um, start envisioning our neighborhoods as actual communities in which what's good for you has to be what's good for your neighbor, what's good for the whole community is what's going to be good for everyone like the more, uh, I, I guess we'll sort of build up the habit of being able to view larger communities as a common good, which is really hard, right? It's hard to imagine the whole United States as one community or something like that, um, or the whole state of Louisiana. But you can do it in these smaller ways. I mean, you start with your family, right? Or um, for those of you who are living with roommates or something, imagining um, your your home and the people within it as a community and what does it mean to live as a community together um, and to be honest and to seek God together there as you are um, pushing us to remember. Um, but you could really grow in the sort of habits necessary to foster the common good in these small ways. And then when Catherine gets married, she can run for school board president or something. Oh, yeah. and 
you know, the school district president and she can <laughs> then expand it a little bit. And then that's the beginning of her career. Then she becomes a state legislator. And then, you know, the that's yeah. right. then you're a Supreme Court justice. Then you you're a Supreme Court justice. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. with a minivan. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. One of the things that makes it so difficult to even think about our, I, I thought the same thing, right? That if there's anywhere where a human and community-based solidarity kind of approach to politics can still be done, it's on a local level where you still have to look people in the face and disagree with them and mm-hmm. know that you live next to them the next three days right? Or the next five years, like I have to see you in the future. It's helpful to not be able to have the anonymity of the internet. It makes us better people. If you know you have to live with these neighbors forever and to engage with them as humans and look them in the face and dialogue and stuff like that. So it makes it much more possible on a local level, Mm -hmm. but the rot also infects there. And so for me, it's, it's difficult because if we tend to see our common projects divorced from any kind of spiritual goods, and I don't necessarily mean like religious goods, although religious goods tend to be spiritual, but like any goods that are immaterial, you're not going to be able to see anything as a common project. Like if, if I'm thinking about doing something in common with my neighbors, but the only way I see the world is in terms of like money and physical goods. Well, those can't be shared in like the strictest sense. Like my mm-hmm. money's my money, your money's your money. If we come into some kind of more tight knit community, you can have shared money where it's shared, but, um, but even the goods there, if one person consumes it, the other person doesn't like the pizza can't go down my throat and your throat at the same time. Like it just doesn't, mm-hmm. not even if we're birds, like I still have to throw it up into your mouth. Um, I was thinking about penguins. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, if you watch it, it's intense, dude. It's like, how (laughs) deep can you stick your bill down that other penguin's throat? You know, know. Catherine's got a thought. I could tell. I did it. (laughs) I I thought about my thought and then I stopped listening for a second. And then we started talking about penguins and I got confused, but, um, Dr. Pedrazi, you talked about, the family being that kind of starter unit of like forming good community. And then you jump to neighborhoods. My question is, could the parish be a kind of training ground for how to build communities? I'm sorry. You just like, you hit a nerve for me. I love, I just, ugh, that is, that has been something that I have been harping on. Mm for the past two years. And one of the things like I remember uh, two years ago now, I invited a few of my friends over. Uh, This was last year, actually. I invited some of my friends over for Labor Day. My family does Labor Day big every year. Like we pitched the tents. Like we had people parking in other neighborhoods, walking (laughs) to our house. Like it was, it was amazing. Um, And one of my friends, she came up to me and was like, Yo, is this a most pure heart of Mary and most pure heart of Mary family reunion? And I was like, LOL, no. Like, what are you talking about? And she was like, everybody that goes to most pure heart of Mary is here right now. And I look over and I was like, oh my word, yes. Because 
so I live out the way from like the rest of my family, but most of most people on my mom's side of the family grew up going to most pure heart of Mary parish because they all live in that area. Now, like, so it, it was just so funny to me. And I actually, um, I had a friend call me and said, I believe it was either Philly or, or somewhere where the bishop was going to erect a black Catholic parish. And my friend was like super upset about this because she was like, why do they want to take all of the black people out of their like respective parishes um, in order to bring them to this church? But when she started talking, I was like, I know what's going on. She's from Phoenix, Arizona, where you have people super spread out, like all over the place. So you've got black people here, you've got black people there. So like bring, so building a black Catholic parish in Phoenix, like there's kind of no point in a sense because they are so spread out all over the place. It's not like they are, most people will congregate to a specific area, like not a specific place. So this is what was confusing for her, but where this church was going to be erected is a community where there are a lot of black people all in one spot who have no parish community to fill the needs of that community. And that's why I, I feel like parochial life is so essential and so important and it's killing us even in the Catholic community, that we don't have that. Like, we don't do that well. And I, I've, I've been able to, and I've been privileged to, in my own ministry going two years now, two different parishes all around the, all around the country, and seeing this done really terribly, but also really well in some places. Yeah. And I see just the entire community flourish if the parish is flourishing. And like, there's just, there's an extension, like parishes were supposed to be an extension of the nuclear families. Like, that's why you have like, of my family, you have like the Fosters or you have the Treneers or you have like, like these people, all of the, we're all like cousins, like distantly or something, but we all gathered in that one place in order to share meals, in order to experience mass together, in order to go to Mardi Gras parades together. Like my family like stands at most pure heart of Mary every year, or the other side of my family stands at a building called the comrades in mobile every year. <laughs> like, because we all like do things together as family, but if there's no place or there's no common good or there's no sharing of goods physical and spiritual where we can gather around that like you're gonna have people dispersed all over the place and then we're not gonna know how to commune with each other yes. you know like that's the danger of not being able to be in community which i think we've seen the pandemic kind of like just put that on blast is we don't know how to be in communion with people but it it hurts us so deeply to not have that community. And that's one of the things that I was a bit scared of when I moved here, you know, cause I'm from, I'm from Alabama and I don't really have a lot of family here. 
But the way in which, like, especially Father Josh, um, who's a dear friend of mine, the way in which that he's ingrained me into the Holy Rosary community, like it's it's unreal to me just how much that parish is flourishing because of the intentional communities that Father Josh has worked so hard to build and to, you know, intentionally pour not only himself, but make sure that he is a vessel of, of the spirit of God to build those communities. Because again, God is a community, is a communion of persons. So it's, it's so essential to have that. And we see not only like our families, but our entire country falling apart when we lose touch with building communities and what that's like. Yeah. So you mean to say me just grabbing my donut and asking how the kids are and talking about LSU football and leaving five minutes later is in community building? I'm not about it. Like, (laughs) I'm not about it. (laughs) I understand we have things to do, but (laughs) there needs to be, there needs to be more of that, you know? And I, I love that Fran Yu does that, that the theology program would get together and have lunch. What did y'all do? Lunch together every Mm -hmm. Monday? Yeah. Like that. Oh, I love that. I love that so much because it builds a community within the school, you know, especially the theology program being so tight knit, like y'all can, y'all can do that. When uh, I feel like it was Elise that first told me that you guys did that. I was like, what do you mean they have lunch together? (laughs) Like I was so perplexed. I was so confused, Uh, but I would like see pictures and stuff. And I was like, Wow. Who who does that? Like no one else. I don't, I don't see a lot of other people doing that. And see, like, come on I down just, to the I south, people. You enough. Come on down to the south. Yes, you. come down here. Like we will treat you right. You will gain fifteen pounds, <laughs> but you'll be happy. That's it. You know? That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, there, there's this perspective that <clears throat> that I kind of want to bring to the table here. Um, we we're talking about, you know, uh, you know, talking about politics within a community or building community, you know, um, to like love one another. So that also whenever we do talk about politics, we don't you know, go to war with one another. And I kind of want to bring out the perspective of, of um, religious life um, a little bit. Um, two things. Um, the first is um, whatever... I first entered the community. Um, I I felt so empty for a while because um, before I had entered, I was just you know I don't have social media or anything, but I found myself always online looking at you know CNN, Fox News, all these different websites, uh, news channels, um, always like staying up to date and always like uh, feeding myself with this information. Um, and then whenever I discerned to go into the community, I went, I just, I felt empty and I felt like I couldn't concentrate and I couldn't focus. And I think a large part of that was because of, um, uh, I was just being fed the news so much. Um, and I started to miss it. And, you know, I asked, you know, how the superior, uh, or I asked the superior and I said, you know, can we have news? And he said, well, no, we're a religious community. We don't, you know, news is not necessarily our thing. You know, we know about the world. We, um, we, we take it piece by piece, whatever we need to know, you know, we'll, we'll know it if we really need to know it, you know, which is true. 
Um, and so I, I complained to uh, one of the other brothers about this because I wasn't satisfied with that answer. Uh, and one of the brothers told me, he said, Daniel, what you don't understand is that grace tends to work on a lot more local level, you know, like in that community, in that parish life, you know, with our neighbors, with our friends, you know, um, there's nothing that you can necessarily do um, by simply watching the national news. Like you can be aware of what's going on on a national scale, but it's not like you can go talk to like President Trump or it's not like you can go talk to, you know, any of these politicians, like, you know, you can call your congressman, I guess, but I mean, there's not, not really much that you can do, unfortunately. And so it is, um, it, it is intriguing that we're talking about being left to the community, um, left to our local community. Um, and so, I mean, I think I just want to insert here, like, I think that, you know, watching the local news is, would be a lot more beneficial um, for this case than watching the national news. Um, because at that point we, we learn about what's going on um, with our parish, you know, um, our uh, state parish, not our uh, religious parish, not our Catholic <laughs> right. parish. Also known that as counties and other states. Yeah. I will say, right. I was yeah. like, what do y'all mean y'all don't have counties? What is this parish thing that y'all <laughs> right. talking about? <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So we learn about the parishes and stuff. And I think, I think so too, like, you know, being in the religious community, you get a different aspect of it because you're not, you're not fed with social media. You're not fed with the news. Um, and of course, every community is different, you know, but um, for the specific community I'm talking about. And yeah, you know, we had, we had political discussions in the cloister, you know, um, and they were, they didn't get heated, you know, but there were, there were some serious differences but the, the main difference I want to point out is the fact that we spoke with each other with charity and we had charity as our end, charity as our goal, because we had that communal sharing of goods. You know, we, we ate at the same dinner table. We woke up and said the same prayers. You know, we, we, we ate the Eucharist together, you know, um, went to the breaking the bread. And since we had that, that sharing of physical and spiritual goods, we also had at the end, our end goal was, was charity. And our end goal was also virtue and true virtue. Um, not, uh, trying to point to like a false virtue, um, or a false notion of it. And so whenever we're discussing, we might agree to disagree, but I still love my brother after that. And he still loves me and we want the same thing for each other. And so that's why we're discussing. That's why we're we're uh, critiquing one another to get to that one end, which is God, which is knowledge of Jesus Christ, you know? Um, so I, I think that I just wanted to point that out because I think that was so clear in the religious community. Um, and it's true for us too, you know, uh, as a laity. So, yeah. Yeah. I, go ahead, Dr. Minor. I was going to say all you listeners out there, we have no pre-access to Fratelli Tutti, but I would be willing to bet quite a bit of money that it's going to be working and thinking on these same themes. Please God, that'd be awesome. That's the uh, encyclical we're awaiting from Pope Francis. He will sign on the eve of St. Francis's feast day. As I say, it's coming out in like three days, right? Yeah. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. I, 
to, to wrap up this topic, and then I want to ask Dr. Meinert one question that I think we need to discuss, but it, it just strikes me that our communities really need Jesus. And I don't say that flippantly or to try and make it, uh, you know, too of a simple solution, but I say that because if it's true that this sort of individualism and power grabbing and needing affirmation from other people to have our own identity is so rooted in our habits and who we are now, then the intellectual stuff that we're talking about is going to be important. It's going to illuminate, but also our wills are pretty weak and we're sinful and you need Jesus to really, it's going to need conversion. In other words, you know, like I don't think you get a parish that's as alive as say um, Avera's experience of Holy Rosary without people who have genuinely encountered Jesus Christ and have Mm -hmm. given themselves over to him and he's begun to change the way that they see and the way that they act. So it's it's going to take nothing short of a conversion. So the more that we um, continue to proclaim Christ to others, I think the better it will be. Um, Dr. Miner, I think we'll be remiss if we don't bring up this topic, because I think a lot of people will want to know when it actually comes to voting. And it's the topic of cooperation. And I'll I'll at least, um, I'll, I'll frame it like this and then you can give us, uh, take us to school quickly on what the church says about cooperation. A lot of times you hear people, especially in terms of the presidential election, don't forget the local elections. That's a good takeaway from what we're saying. Probably in some sense more important than the presidential one. Um, but when you hear people talking about the presidential election, they'll often describe it in terms of like, I'm definitely not voting for so-and-so and I will regrettably vote for so-and-so, you know, whoever the so-and-so is for them. You know, it's just like, there's one candidate that they're just like, ew, no way. I could never bring myself to do that. And the other candidate, it's like, okay, yeah, there's some flaws there, but I'll go ahead and vote for that person. And they start talking about it in terms of like, I'll vote for the lesser of two evils, something like that. And the, that sort of statement always brings up for me the church's teachings on any sort of moral choice where there's going to be, as a consequence, an evil. Um, so when you're faced with choices like that, and it brings up this idea of our cooperation in evil. So can you take us to school for a quick moment on what the church has to say about this? Yeah, there's a lot there. And, oh, we could spend years talking about lesser evil doctrines and the history of those and all of that kind of stuff. Um, One thing that's important to note, I think, for Catholics voting is that you always vote for a candidate and not um, an issue necessarily. Like it's always a vote for this candidate or that candidate. And that's a really important um that's just the way we vote, right? If there's a referendum on a particular issue, then we're voting for an issue. But in a presidential election, we're always voting for a candidate. Um, and so that's an important part of our deliberation. And I mean, this this goes back to like uh, to our distinctions we were drawing between national and local politics and things like that. But our vote in a national election can only ever be 
kind of remote material cooperation. And what the church means by that is that um, cooperation is there as a principle to deal with when you do something that's legitimate and good, but someone else uses it for evil. Should you avoid doing that good thing because someone else is going, you foresee like, uh, even though I'm doing this good thing, someone else is going to use it for evil. Um, So the church is assuming right off the bat that you're not going to vote for a candidate specifically because of one of the uh, positions they hold that the church um, uh, says is not true, right? So that's certainly off limits. You should never vote for someone who explicitly contradicts church teaching. You shouldn't vote for them for that reason, which right? would be formal cooperation. Right. That would be formal, meaning you want like the bad want thing the that evil. they're going to do. Yeah. Like yeah. that's a great thing. I just want the, everyone to do that. Um, right. Not going there. But as far as that, right, once you cast your vote for a candidate and not an issue, um, you're talking about material cooperation where your legitimate action is being, you foresee it, it's going to be uh, used for evil by others. And because of that, um, you're in the realm of kind of double effect where your good action is going to contribute unintentionally to some evil because you think voting for that candidate is a higher good that you're willing to tolerate, not choose, but tolerate the possibility of that other evil coming about that you foresee. And this is ubiquitous in voting, especially for Catholics, right? Because our church's teaching doesn't sit easily in the American political sphere, right? So there are certain issues where we agree with one party and certain issues where we agree with another party and certain issues where we'd we'd say, plague on both your houses, like neither of those are very good, right? So it's a hard place to be for Catholics. Um, And so when we deliberate, we're, we're choosing which candidate we think is going to work and affect something closer to what a Catholic would take to be a flourishing country. And in some sense, it's always a compromise. And as long as you're not voting for the person specifically because of their bad position, right. Then you're talking about material cooperation um, where you're, it's just a question of what goods are you seeking by voting for that candidate and what evils are you willing to tolerate the possibility that they will come about. Does that kind of make sense? It does make sense. I I think so. To sort of boil it down, you cannot formally cooperate in evil. You don't choose, pick a candidate because you want to support their evil position. That is certainly condemned. And you can materially cooperate with evil. So you pick a candidate for the good that you uh, envision them doing, um, and you are going to tolerate the evil that will come with it. Um, Possibly come with it, right? Because you're voting for a person and who the heck knows what they're going to do, right? Right. Yeah. And and that's where, and you also (laughs) have to, I I think it's important. You were alluding to this at the end, but the amount of evil that you envision can't surpass the good that you're voting for. So it's not like to make an extreme example, you couldn't be like, well, I know this candidate hates immigrants, uh, wants to murder babies and, but he's going to build a park in my neighborhood and I'm voting for him for the park, you know, like the proportionate 
you know, it's not proportionate. The, the evil that you envision that will be done wouldn't be proportionate to the good that you're voting for. Right. Right. And it's, it's also important to think about that kind of, that Catholic vision of politics we were talking about earlier, that it's not in some sense, it's not redemptive. So we have to be chastened somewhat in our expectations for what politics can do. Um, And we have to vote. And this is part of our deliberation when we're thinking about what good things we think will come about because of candidate X, Y, or Z and what evils will possibly come about because of candidate X, Y, or Z that we're dealing in the realm of possibilities um, and also dealing in the realm of kind of contingent, contingent goods that, um, that sometimes we have to act politically for the best we can do right now. And that's just the way it is. Like maybe we can do this. You have to, you have a candidate and you deeply disagree with them on some things and those things are unlikely to change or come about. And maybe you want to vote for another candidate where you think I agree with them on this and I disagree with them on these other things, but these, the things, the reasons for which I'm uh, voting for them have a real chance of happening. And the evils that I'm tolerating that we don't have a real chance of ending those. So it's, it's about the, it's about what is really possible good you could pursue, even if a lesser good in our current political circumstances And so you see why the church doesn't give you like, you have to vote for candidate X because as soon as you get down on the ground, dang, it gets complicated. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. That's why prudence is so necessary when it comes to this. Yeah. That's fantastic. Maybe on the last note, uh, the U S bishops in their document on um, politics in the country, they do mention if, if you judged, with prudence that neither of the major parties would be satisfactory, you could actually abstain from voting, right? So if you feel like the only thing that's going to come about from doing this is evil, that is a possibility on the table. Like I'm not voting for them. Like that could mean voting for a third party, right? or it could mean that you just don't vote for that particular part of the election. So Um, There's lots to ponder there, and I definitely encourage people to look at, uh, if you go to the USCCB website, you can check out what our bishops have to say in giving us some guidance. But uh, on that note, we should wrap this thing up, folks. Anybody have any last words? We don't have any fun games at the end? No, not this time around. But we do have students who need to get out of here. Yeah, okay, fine. But you can catch us on Facebook and Instagram at The Dunce's Corner. We are on Twitter at DunsePod. Or you can email us at DunsePod at gmail.com. And we look forward to hearing from you. And we will talk to you all later. Peace. The only reason I'm on this podcast is for the games. I know. I like the games. (laughs) I like the games too. Don't worry. We will next time. I don't know if I'm coming back.